0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential, your premier forensic psychology podcast. I'm Dr. Shiloh. And of course, who would I be? I wouldn't even be Dr. Shiloh without this gentleman sitting across the Zoom meeting room from me.
1: Yes, clearly it is. It is my influence on you by going back in time and making you go to school and becoming a cop. Yes, it's all <laughs> it's all my doing. Excellent. It
0: is. Hi, Dr. Scott. <laughs> How are you?
1: I'm good. Welcome.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Welcome, everybody. We are into February. We're bringing you a very interesting episode today. And we have a couple housekeeping things, but I think we'll just save them for the end. Let's just jump into our episode. You want to start us off with our recap?
1: Oh, yeah. Let me talk a little bit about our last episode. Last week, we gave you our rundown and review of the 2022 Netflix documentary entitled Don't Pick Up the Phone. This docu series covers the 10-year span of hoax calls in which a person pretending to be a police officer called up fast food managers and had them perform, get this, strip searches on employees, falsely stating that they had been suspected in thefts from customers. We discuss what sexual offense category this behavior fits under and what psychological processes are at work with the people submitting to these outlandish requests by the caller, as well as opining on what is driving the caller in this situation. I had no idea we would go there in our episode. We, we ended up talking for way longer than we expected. So I think it's in-depth. I think it's fascinating and horrifying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As most of them are.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: so let's let's shift focus here. Today we're gonna to be talking about survivor guilt. And it's probably pretty obvious that this subject came to be an episode topic since the affidavit was released after the arrest was made in the quadruple homicide case in Moscow, Idaho. It was something that was, I know, on the forefront of my brain as we learned about some of those events. And also thank you to our listeners and our Patreon members for sharing that they also wanted to hear about it.
1: So let me give a quick summary here. In the very early morning hours of Sunday, November 13th, 2022, four college students were murdered by an intruder in a multi-level homicide in Moscow, Idaho. Two of the victims were killed while likely still awake in their room on the top or third floor. And the other two victims were murdered in their room on the second, which was the middle floor with at least one of them likely still awake. Another roommate was asleep on the bottom first floor and was unharmed. But there was a second surviving roommate that we will refer to her as DM and her room was on the second middle floor. This individual's experience is what led us to consider discussing for you today the concept of survivor guilt.
0: Right. And of course, we only have her statements from the affidavit, which I'll talk about here in a moment. And we are by no means trying to say what her experience is here. This is just something that has sort of sparked this idea and for us to bring you the research of what survivor guilt is and how this might be experienced by this individual. So DM said that she woke up around 4 a.m. from what sounded like Kaylee Gonzalez playing with her dog upstairs. And then a short time after, DM said that she heard someone she thought was Gonzalez say something to the effect of there's someone here. Police state that this could also have been the voice of Zana Carnodal because she was awake using TikTok at about 4.12 in the morning. Plus she had gotten a food delivery at around 4 a.m. So police were just saying that this voice could have been a couple of people who were still up at that time. And at this point, DM opens her bedroom door to look into the house and doesn't see anything. So DM opens her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying i mm-hmm now coming from Kernodle's room. And she said that she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. And remember, DM is on the same floor as Kernodle and Kernodle's boyfriend, Ethan. A third time, DM opens her door and this time she sees a man in black clothes and a mask walking past her. She stood in what she described a frozen shock phase. She then goes on to describe him as about five foot 10 or taller, not very muscular. Muscular but athletically built with bushy eyebrows and she says she doesn't recognize the man who she reported walked towards the house's sliding glass door and then at that point she immediately locks herself in her room so i know there's a lot of conversation and conjecture about what follows after that and we don't have that outlined in the affidavit or what we have released as of january 29th when you and i are recording this but It took a lot of time for DM to notify the police, but that's not our focus today. I just want to say, yes, we know that's something people are talking about. Really not going to be part of the conversation today. If you want to hear any comments on trauma reactions and why this might be something that she was in such a state of fear that it kept her from calling immediately, please go over to the Surviving the Survivor YouTube and podcast episode. I did an appearance there talking about this very issue. But if you guys have listened to us for any period of time (laughs) and heard our episodes on like Stockholm syndrome or any other trauma topic, like the Columbine episode that we did, you're probably already really educated on those things. But I'll put a link to the, the YouTube video for Surviving the Survivor in our show notes.
1: Yes, thank you for that. And again... Great job on your two episodes on Surviving the Survivor, one of our favorite new YouTube channels and podcasts to listen to. Highly, highly recommend it. Going back to, unfortunately, the name of the victims whose lives were lost in this terrible, terrible incident. It includes Ethan Chapin, age 20, Madison Mogan, age 21, Zana Kernodal, age 20, and Kaylee Gonzalez, 21. And as always, we want to continue to put their memories front and center when thinking about this issue. We also want to give you a trigger warning. And yes, we understand the science or the non-science behind trigger warnings, but we are setting that up so that you know what you're getting into, because this is a heavy episode and we're talking about themes of PTSD and the associated trauma, including examples of concentration camps, wartime deaths, long-term fatal illnesses, and suicide.
0: Yes. Thank you for that. So survivor guilt is a pretty common term, both clinically used and then also in lay terms. And most people, I think, have a general understanding of what it means when they hear it, right? They And they aren't far off when they go to describe it when we're talking about trauma-exposed individuals. And survivor guilt typically arises in people who have been exposed to or witnessed death and have stayed alive, which... Of course, you have to have stayed alive to witness this, right? But it's going to lead to a couple of things. It's going to lead to emotional distress. And then there's also this second piece of negative self-appraisal. So often survivors feel responsible for the death or injury of others, or this happens even when they really have no power or influence on that situation at all. It's just kind of a phenomenon that ends up following the situation.
1: But so important that you added that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I also want to pick apart just the guilt piece on survivor guilt a little bit more and talk about guilt because we're looking at guilt. It's a it's a self-conscious affect and moral emotion that's characterized by that negative self-evaluation that we're talking about or you'll hear us say self-appraisal in today's episode. But guilt is self-focused, but also highly important for our social functioning. It, It does serve a purpose like all emotions do. And it's thought to be really kind of essential for our interpersonal functions by encouraging the repair Valuable relationships, and then hopefully learning from whatever the transgressions were, so you don't do them again, and so you can sort of express guilt to people, and you can be forgiven. And again, I'm just talking like guilt, everyday guilt, right? Not these high right. level traumatic ones necessarily. But guilt is is pretty uncomfortable. It, it makes us feel uncomfortable, and it what it does is it motivates us to apologize or to do better next time. So that it definitely serves a purpose. And I just wanted to talk about that to to plug in how it fits in this really more magnified version of guilt when we're talking about feeling that way after someone's death.
1: Absolutely. I think that you're hitting on some very important points. In fact, probably that there is a biological foundation in our bodies for guilt because it helps us survive as a species and helps us engage in social contracts that keep society moving forward. So survivor guilt was once considered a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, but it has been removed from the latest versions of the DSM. And this was a version of the DSM that was published when much research was being conducted on Vietnam vets. Therefore, high levels of survivor guilt was being detected. But despite having some diagnostic considerations, the experience has not been robustly studied really in any systematic way. So as you can imagine, we have a lot of relation and overlap to PTSD, moral injury and traumatic bereavement.
0: Another Venn diagram for us.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And going back, we talked about moral injury in the past. Moral injury is when someone is involved in or exposed to a traumatic event. And during that event, they do something that goes against their beliefs. And we call that an act of commission or They fail to do something that is in line with their beliefs, which would then be an act of omission. It's suddenly sounding very Catholic churchy, but we'll move on from that. And they also then experience betrayal from leadership, others in position of power or peers that can result in additional adverse outcomes. So to summarize, a moral injury can occur in response to acting or witnessing behaviors that go against an individual's values and moral beliefs.
0: You know, it's so interesting. I was having breakfast with someone today that I'm having come speak at a training that I'm putting on and she's a gun violence survivor. And I was telling her about my situations at work and the shootings I had been involved in. And and I was saying, you know, it actually, what was worse was the longstanding sort of way that I was treated by my department afterwards. And she goes, Oh, moral injury. And I had forgotten there was that little piece of moral injury that can occur Wow! when you have that institutional betrayal that happens. And I hadn't, I've kind of looked at them as two separate things. And, you know, here's this wonderful woman. That's a survivor that brought it to my attention to go, wait, 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 Shiloh, you got to acknowledge what this was for you. It was a really neat moment.
1: I'm glad she said that for you because that Illustrates something else that may get lost in all of this definition Mm. is that the moral injury can occur even when you haven't done anything wrong.
0: Yes. Yes. Like,
1: even if you follow procedures and you have done everything that it is humanly possible for you to do, if the integrated and strict culture says that you did something wrong, regardless of whether you did, that's going to have an effect on you. Yeah, And certainly any type of work that we do or any kind of social interaction or commitment we make actually has a reflection of how we deal with people interpersonally. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad she pointed that out. That's kind of popped open a couple of windows in my brain as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then going back to our Venn diagram, traumatic bereavement, of course, is this natural grieving process, but it's being disrupted as the result of the traumatic death of your friend or family member or whomever. And it leads to this lasting negative impact on your well-being and everyday functioning. And traumatic bereavement requires us essentially to process through the trauma, but you're also processing through bereavement simultaneously. So this is not just your run-of-the-mill bereavement for someone who has died naturally and lived a long life. You're sort of battling with these two things. So very simply, very similar to what we talk about when we talk about like complex grief and bereavement so going back to the idaho case and dm i think we can look at a few things here right we can say that she was probably in fear for her life seeing this stranger in her home with a mask on after hearing some disturbances in the house even if she wasn't able to quite you know pull all that together right then and there because there would have been a lot of confusion and just probably a lot of horrible things filling in the gaps for her because there is so much unknown. And then she learns of the horrific nature of what actually happened to her friends after the police do get to the house and respond. And then on top of that, she has this experience of probably realizing that she could have been killed, but wasn't. So you have so many things going on simultaneously for her or anyone in this situation. And then perhaps the experience of not doing more in the situation once her body starts to regulate again after the initial experience which for her lasted for hours, you have all of the cognitions that come with it, right? The shoulda, coulda, wouldas that happen for a lot of people in any given traumatic event. And then on top of that, unfortunately, we have everyone on social media jumping on it, right? At first, suspicious of the surviving roommates. Did they have something to do with it? And then kind of, pivoting and accusing her of not doing more quicker. So there's a lot of forces, especially that outside force of judgment, I'm sure that are weighing on her at this point.
1: Well, yeah, now how familiar does that sound to what amanda knox was put through just that immediately leaping to oh yeah you know responsibility before and evidence has come in which is also something you know you and i both got approached by the media to respond on this issue and both of us and i'm i will i will stand in authenticity in making this statement we held the boundary Yeah. By saying over and over again, everybody needs to slow down. There's not enough evidence. Stop pointing fingers. Let The police do the work that they need to do without throwing a bunch of bullshit into the mix.
0: Yeah, you know
1: I get it. People want to talk about it, and a horrible thing has happened. But you know, be careful with your information or your thoughts because what you put out on the internet can muddy the waters for a very important investigation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know this is not commonplace for you and I to comment, especially publicly, on cases that are ongoing. But I think you and I both felt a little bit of a pull to do that to show some professionalism, bring some information to the story that was relevant. And that was something that we could work with. I mean, that's like the phrase that's coming to my mind, like something that we actually knew about. We weren't just talking about. We're not just commenting. (laughs) Right.
1: I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I get it. There's a whole industry that is in this country, in this world, current world that is based on opinion and conjecture and You know, in cases like this, man, you gotta, you just gotta pull the reins back on that horse. But
0: I was like, Scott, get on News Nation. You tell them there's not enough information for this to be in cell. I know. I know. Straighten it out. Exactly. <laughs> okay, moving on.
1: Let's get back to the the narrative. Who is impacted by survivor guilt? And you know, survivor guilt is reported in a wide range of traumatized groups, and those can include refugee populations, military veterans, certainly survivors of terrorist attacks, HIV negative gay men or HIV positive men who are classified as long-term non-progressors or those that have Terminal symptomology, or they have the diagnosis, but they never got the symptoms. They've been alive for thirty years. I'd also add that it's not just gay men; it is also women and men who were affected by some incident, whether in their control or out of their control. They still can experience these symptoms of survivor guilt, and this experience is associated with more severe PTSD symptoms, and it has been associated with post-service suicide attempts in a military veteran population. So, sadly, we have have a very robust study pool to pull from, and that is military veterans. So we're going to be getting a lot of information, but it's just heartrending to think of how many people are out there, male and female veterans that are dealing with this. Survivor guilt also affects those that survive mass casualty accidents. Recent studies have shown that survivor guilt is a common experience in such groups. And let me give you a couple of examples. One study found that survivor guilt existed in 38% of their sample of Nigerian soldiers. Another documented 46% of veterans of the Vietnam War that endorsed symptoms of survivor guilt. Survivor guilt's also been recorded in medical populations. For example, in 55% of lung cancer survivors, that's a pretty significant number, but it's also very common in cancer survivors that end up connecting with other people through the process of treatment. They bond with these people, they form relationships, and then for just the reasons of our genetics, we one may not respond to treatment when the other survives. And then, of course, in accidents and disasters and in survivors of a mass casualty maritime accident, 61% of the survivors reported guilt 30 months after the incident and then a full 10 years after the Piper Alpha oil platform disaster. 31% of survivors had guilt. So this tells us that it is also, for many, a long-lasting experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This isn't just, you know, you you get the survivor guilt and then you move on to other trauma symptoms or PTSD. It's no, all it feels there. like
1: it's a really, a really different process, very yes. similar to other other pathways, but distinct and unique in its own way.
0: Indeed. So you found some wonderful data about specifically looking at survivors of murder. And with that, we know murder is not a normal occurrence, and the murder of a family member or loved one is, without a doubt, a devastating experience. The survivors go through a storm of feelings from stunned shock, numbness, depression, and anger, to name a few. It's a storm that spins all of these feelings up at once. And while humans are wired to be both physically and emotionally very resilient, of course, traumatic and exceptional experience like this can result in profoundly rooted emotional damage, wounds that can take years to heal if the survivor's really lucky enough to get that far. There's the severe complex grief that comes with a murdered family member, a friend, or other loved one stands apart than most other forms of grief because it's so tragic and unexpected.
1: In 2018, over 13,000 individuals were victims of murder in the United States, according to the website Statistica. So it's unfortunately easy to imagine the numbers of grieving homicide survivors that are left to cope with the death of their loved ones. And you know, what we've done is we've narrowed down through research, the most common reactions to having a family member murdered. There's shock and numbness because such an extraordinary event is so traumatic, the survivor may experience a form of derealization. The event is so out of the larger context understanding of that moment that the individual cannot experience it as real. In essence, this is our neurological processes attempting to protect our body and our brain from the effects on physiology. Then there's denial. Along with shock, the survivor can inhabit an emotional place where they just can't believe what has happened. There's intense grief when the real authentic understanding of the event finally begins to set in. Intense grief can be overwhelming. The expression of intense grief can certainly vary from individual to individual and from culture to culture. It can include cathartic crying, screaming, sobbing, unconscious self-battery, such as using fists to pound on one's torsos and legs, or intense grief can also result in almost what is catatonia, the inability to engage in physical action or interpersonal reactions, interpersonal engagements because of the overwhelming flood of emotions. Then, of course, you can't get away from any of this without intense and high levels of fear and anxiety. Once the major intensity has passed, individuals sometimes orient towards creating and maintaining and inhabiting a place of emotional and physical safety. And that can look very different for people out in the world. It can look different from you than it would for me. But when taken to an extreme, this can even alter daily routines where stepping outside of the comfort zone of the home or the office can become uncomfortable. People... People can feel skittish and wary about leaving their home for fear that the murderer will return, even if the murderer is behind bars or dead, or the event or a similar type of event could happen. Traumatic events can shatter a survivor's sense of security and cause fear of what is considered to be uncontrollable.
0: And then you have... You know, which we're all familiar with, the fact that not is this just a traumatic death, but it's a crime. So now it's part of the criminal justice system, right? Which is going to drag this out because of so many procedures and ways in which the wheels of justice turn very, very slow. But it's there's gonna be a constant reminder. It's gonna be the scab is constantly gonna be pulled off of this wound, unfortunately, for a very long time for people. It's hard to start in on your healing when it's one so tragic and unexpected and two when there's a big big process to go through so looking at psychological theoretical models as to why survivor guilt even exists i mean we just briefly talked about of course our emotions are there to protect us in different ways but i wanted to go through some of these theories so we have a psychoanalytic theory and you know think freud when you hear psychoanalytic really this psychoanalysis is a set of theories and therapeutic techniques that deal in part with the unconscious mind right so this is this is where we're coming from when we talk about this but when looking at survivor guilt this viewpoint stems really from a study in the 60s probably more than one study a handful of studies that looked at holocaust survivors in which they were exhibiting some psychic conflict, is what they call it, when the inmates of the concentration camps at some point had identified with the aggressor or the guards in this case. And the psychoanalysts found that this led to this unconscious sense that they had betrayed their fellow captives who died. And then we also saw this documented as a theory after hearing from Hiroshima survivors when they described the sense that another's life had been sacrificed at the the expense of their own. So you have a couple of things going on here that have throughout the decades been looked at. Theories of psychology sometimes follow different periods of time, (laughs) depending on what is like the trend in the field at the time. But, you know, this was really specific to looking at survivors of some horrible mass events. And they were really interested in kind of seeing what the unconscious mind was doing in those times. So then a theory that developed in the 70s was looking at equity theory. And this This suggested that people prefer outcomes just in general that are fair and deserving as we walk through life. And so survivor guilt ends up being that result when something horrible happens to someone else. It's another another twist on this is that guilt can occur as a result of positive inequity when people feel they have benefited unfairly, if you will. So, you know, sometimes you'll hear with survivor guilt, you know, why when this IED blew up did he have to die and not me? You know, he had a family. He had things to live for. I'm a single guy that doesn't have anyone, you know, waiting for me at home. Some of these comparing and contrasting that you'll hear, and this kind of falls under this branch of just looking at things in an equal and fair way. And we know life isn't fair, right? I think I said that in our, our last episode of Pathological Lying, but, or maybe it was toxic sports parents, but we have this idea of things should be fair. It makes us feel better.
1: It's also about on that level that you're talking about where things should be fair. I believe, or I would say that underneath that is a foundation of, I need to understand how the world works. And it's easier to understand how the world works if there's some sort of scale of justice out there or the concept of karma, which is always misinterpreted, the concept of karma is almost explained in this, well, you're doing something bad, you're going to get yours, and it's going to happen in the next week or so, which is not really fair to the the spiritual definition of what that means. But again, we want to have something that makes sense to us. We want to make sense of our world and having the belief that we live in a righteous and fair and (laughs) quinanimous just society. Yeah, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that rug gets pulled out from under people a lot, right? Yeah,
0: definitely. And the function of guilt in this context is the preservation of that inner person relationship that we talked about earlier but when the other person in the relationship has died leaving that feeling of unresolve you know you're never able to apologize or make things right mm. so hence yeah. the reason this is very complicated and that wound stays open
1: Right. So we also then go into the idea of mourning, your mourning possibility that will never occur. You mourn the future relationship with that person that you were so close to in whatever sense. There's also an evolutionary psych perspective in cases where the other person doesn't die, but does suffer in some way. And this evolutionary perspective views Survivor Guild as a strategy that we've developed to promote group cohesion. It would then inhibit antisocial competition and it allows us or, or motivates motivates us to engage in altruistic or beneficial behaviors. And there's some research that shows that survivor guilt leads to helping behaviors, in other words like or as an example, opening homes to those whose homes burned down or when people were leaving the Ukraine in in mass numbers and at the polish rail station they were leaving supplies and child buggies and and you know just amazing wonderful wonderful things and we do know that in disasters and emergency people do tend to step up and help each other despite what the walking dead wants you to believe because it's for <laughs> dramatic effect You know, um, (laughs) we're
0: all going to be at each other rather than helping each other. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Which also it contributes to not always the most positive outlook on life. And I don't mean positive. That's like, let's pour pink paint all over this broken glass and pretend that it's pretty. It's like, no, that's not it. It's that you can still have a positive outlook when you share some sort of sense of the future and your future may be just based on the collaboration relationships that you have with the people around you. Sure. Anyway, cognitive and cognitive behavioral theories also contribute to their idea of PTSD. And they conceptualize PTSD as the constant evaluation of the traumatic event. Like it's, it's you're worrying it. You're, you're like a worry stone in your pocket or like, you know, running your tongue over a cracked tooth or something. Mm-hmm. You just can't stop doing it. And we call it like a fixation or a rumination. And then that leads to an ongoing sense of the current threat. So what you have here is that constant experience of cognitive reliving or replaying of the event leading to continued hypervigilance and then associated mood symptomology. So when we look at it in the context of survivor guilt, survivors are caught in this continual battle to make sense of their survival. Survival, leading to persistent guilt and then not feeling worthy of the life that they still have in the moment and in the future this is the cognitive distortion that needs to be undone, unpacked, and deconstructed. Survivors commonly report a sense of wanting to repair or make amends in some ways for surviving, but very few, unless they've sought treatment, have found a means to do so. And there are some who have been able to break out of the constant rumination, but they were vulnerable to returning to it when their attempts to work off the guilt just felt insufficient. So you also have this phenomenon where an individual believes that they didn't cope adequately or quote unquote, perform well during a traumatic event, and then they may doubt their ability to cope with future danger and feel more afraid in their day-to-day life. And I think a great example was one of our other documentary shows about the Las Vegas shooting. Yes. We heard first responders and survivors talk about that several times.
0: Yeah. So where with PTSD, like traditional PTSD, the root of the emotion, the root emotion, I guess, is fear. In the case of Then adding survivor guilt on top of that, you have that constant added feelings of guilt and shame, which is then contributing back to the rumination.
1: Exactly. The mindset is stuck in this loop of thinking, you know, other people dying instead of me means that I have done something wrong by surviving, which is just the saddest mental gymnastics ever, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. But we also know that not everyone with survivor guilt meets full criteria for PTSD. So in some cases, they may ruminate about it, but not have all the other symptoms of like reliving the event or engaging in avoidance behavior. And we've seen this with COVID, right? People who think they gave the virus to someone else who died are living perhaps with survivor guilt, but not necessarily PTSD. So there's another interesting aspect survivor guilt that (laughs) we wanted to touch on here, which is revenge, the concept of revenge, the feeling of wanting to have revenge. And among crime victims of severe sexual or physical violence, there are significant correlations between revenge and post-traumatic stress disorder. The relationship between revenge and psychological adjustment following homicidal loss has only recently begun to emerge as a field of study following the increase in targeted violence and mass Mass casualty events that you and I have talked ad nauseum about at this point. But feelings of revenge are a common human response to being hurt by others. And homicide is clearly one of the most severe forms of interpersonal violence. So it's really not a huge leap to consider that individuals who experience grief from secondary homicide will experience high levels of thoughts of revenge. What is clearly understood is that the process of treating and healing that trauma will be hampered by the presence of thoughts of revenge.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for for bringing that up because, you know, it's interesting. There's this two sides of a coin of what we would call rumen not being able to break out of the thoughts of that traumatic event. And then there's fixation and the fixation. Then I would, I would be as bold to say as the fixation can develop out of exactly what you talked about earlier of other people dying instead of me means that I have done something wrong by Mm -hmm. surviving. I, I it's an interesting overlap and intersection of all of these forms of grief and recent research in this area shows that participants polled from grief support groups reported significantly less situational revenge in those cases or situations where the perpetrator of the homicide of the loved one was a direct family member as compared to cases where the perpetrator was an indirect family member friend or someone unknown so there are a lot of factors that can be at play in this overall though homicidally bereaved people reported more situational revenge, but not more dispositional revenge when compared to a sample of students who had experienced relatively mild challenges in their interpersonal actions. And, you know, as an example, I mean, this is something we could probably do another show on is there's an individual right now who is incarcerated and will be serving many years behind bars. This person is a victim of severe sexual trauma and assault when he was a child. Mm -hmm. And so he attacked several pedophiles with a Mm -hmm. hammer Mm -hmm. and that brings up a lot of mixed feelings for people because when we're triggered and when we feel hopeless and angry and out of control we do want to resort to thinking somebody will rescue us from this. There will yeah. be a vigilante who takes care of this. And this, I would think, would be a factor in his decision process.
0: Yeah, I don't, definitely. don't know
1: anything about him. Don't know if there have been psych studies on him or psych data. But I, I, heck, I couldn't, as we brought this up with this revenge aspect to survivor guilt, I couldn't help but think about him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds so natural to me that talking about wanting to have this just fair world, how do you gain back any sense of control? Right. After you feel like that has completely been stripped of you and being blindsided with some of these types of deaths. So looking at treatment for this, I want to say that You know, there's very little treatment research that has been published specifically addressing survivor guilt. So we have to kind of look to the broader spectrum of trauma and at any type of really therapy or treatment protocols or courses of treatment that you're going to do, just normalizing the experience to the person, providing some psychoeducation to them at the very top. Yep just chips away at at a lot for them to make sense of it to tell them what they're experiencing maybe even tell them some research and data of what's out there i like to when i do some some debriefings after critical or traumatic incidents i have a printout that has just common symptoms after a major stressing event and i just let them take it with them it's just it's got you know sort of breaks it down into behavioral and cognitive and you know I, I give it to them at the end of the session for them to peruse later just to know that some of these little things that they might even not bring up in the session are totally normal and some of them might like point that out like oh i did have that before like that's wild. i didn't even know that was attached to it so you know that can do a lot it just sort of putting someone at ease and not feeling like they're the only one that has ever felt this way. But per the Veterans Administration, which of course deals with the treatment of trauma on a daily basis, which with a huge number of vets, individual trauma-focused psychotherapies such as prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and EMDR are the most highly recommended treatments for PTSD and currently have so much research to support them. They are doing I mean, I go to this Navy SEAL Foundation training seminar every year. And just the work and the robust data they have on all of these modalities of treatment is it's really great to sit in a training and go, holy shit, this stuff really, really works and helps a lot of people around the world every year.
1: Yeah. The challenge is not only with the vet population, but really the population at large is that you have to be in a place where you are ready to commit to treatment. And committing to treatment means that you have to give up certain things. You know, when you're severely impaired, and maybe if you've been self-medicating with substance, or you've been self-medicating with lifestyle choices, then that part has to be broken down, or there's got to be a commitment to breaking that down, or else you're reducing the effectiveness of all these really great modalities we're about to review.
0: Yeah. So prolonged exposure or PE is an intervention treatment strategy that's part of cognitive behavioral therapy to help individuals basically confront their fears. So cognitive, meaning the thought process and behavioral, referring to the coping and intrusive behaviors that can emerge out of trauma. PE is a specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy that allows clients to incrementally approach trauma-related memories, feelings, and situations or environments. And because most clients and the population in general want to avoid anything that reminds them of their experience with trauma, the avoidance behaviors will just reinforce that fear. But when we face the reality of traumatic events, we can decrease the symptoms of that trauma. And this treatment is strongly recommended for those undergoing a course of therapy for PTSD.
1: So next is CPT, which is also known as cognitive processing treatment or cognitive processing therapy. And it's similar to cognitive behavioral therapy in a number of ways, but with one really significant difference, and that is the focus. In CPT, cognitive processing treatment, a client will still work with a trained therapist that will help them address and treat negative thoughts and behaviors. But the difference here is that the CPT has a really narrow focus that exclusively deals with trauma and PTSD. So finally, while controversial, one of the more sort of flavor of the year and popular treatments for trauma, stemming from any diagnosis really, is called EMDR. The acronym stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. It's a method that involves the client moving their eyes in a specific way under direction from a certified therapist while They process traumatic memories and the underlying theory asserts that your brain stores memories, but regular memories and traumatic events are processed very differently and that significantly traumatic events just kind of explode that whole process and scramble the cognitive functioning proponents of EMDR assert that combining these eye movements verbal expression of traumatic events, and then guided instructions will allow the client to reprocess what they remember from that negative event. They'll reprocess it and detach from the emotions that are generally triggered by it. Now, I haven't had the treatment done. I am planning on it in the future because I'm wildly curious about it. I have many friends and colleagues that who not only have had it, but are now certified in it, Mm. and they are passionate about this modality. And I also have some very well-respected friends and colleagues that say that that it's really nothing more than a fancy version of cognitive therapy and that you're actually just doing the CPT and prolonged exposure therapy by talking about it in the way you do sure. it. You just happen to be waving a piece of wire or a flashlight or using an electronic thumper. I can't make any kind of judgment on it. I will say this, that even sometimes not completely or thoroughly tested interventions can work because it needs to work for the person undergoing it. And it's it can start off. as placebo effect, but then the positive placebo effect of the treatment then allows other things intellectually, psychic, emotionally to fall into place that then contributes to the improvement. So I'm not shit talking EMDR. I'm just going to say that it is, it's newer and it's more controversial than the other modalities, but very much supported in the community right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is just another form of processing it in a safe space. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different versions of that. And if it works for people, and it's a tool, I'm all for it. I'm I'm being trained in written exposure therapy right now for PTSD, yeah. where, you know, the client is doing writings while they're in session with you and you're processing along the way. So there's many different ways to go about this. Yes, at the core is at the same, sure. And maybe there's something about this rapid eye movement that works for some folks.
1: Well, you bring up a really great point. We're going to talk writing as a treatment intervention in just a bit, but your statement makes me remember the very strongly research and statistically validated treatment of journaling. We mm. know now that journaling is positive. There have been positive results from it studied for literally decades. But what we know more recently is that we're in a world that is increasingly getting away from hand writing implements and we're using keyboards or we're using voice to text. And we now have science that shows that while journaling is always good in any format, if you are trying to process trauma and if you're trying to retain information, writing something longhand is just through the roof in success as compared oh, to great. typing on a computer. And that is statistically validated.
0: Nice to know. I did it's, not know that.
1: It is nice to know. It's not good for me because my handwriting is absolutely illegible. I should be a <laughs> rich medical doctor for as bad as my handwriting
0: <laughs> is. Well, but that's not the point. It doesn't matter what your handwriting's like. It's that you're doing the process
1: but I want it to be pretty.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Man, now I'm like, oh, I got to get my clients off those apps that they're using for journaling.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there's. No,
0: it's a gateway. It's at least getting them to jot down a couple of things. Yeah.
1: It's the start. Absolutely. So essentially,
0: whether we're talking about PTSD, survivor guilt, or moral injury, approaches to alleviate guilt following the trauma are often most effective when they address that distorted cognition we're talking about, which is leading to the guilt, for example, again, that the sufferer could somehow have prevented the trauma is just one of many cognitive distortions we've already touched on today.
1: I woulda, shoulda, coulda done, yeah. and that's never a good path to go down. And, you know, along with, you know, building on these uh, treatment modalities that we we're discussing, there are actions that a survivor of a traumatic event Can take very much that is an underpinning of recovery models from substance use and other forms of therapy for interpersonal growth is the saying connection versus isolation. So, connection instead of isolation is really a source of healing. And while everybody is on their own unique schedule of recovery from traumatic events, it is really vital to seek out connection with others, even if you consider yourself to be a loner or an introvert. You can search for a local support group online that's in your area, or you could search for an actual real-life in-person meeting. And these groups exist in the worst-case scenario for families and relatives of murder victims. And people that come out of them absolutely say that it was important for their recovery. You know, and for individual care, people can look for private therapists. Sometimes insurance can help and pay for those services. And for those that are low income, there are resources for telehealth across each state at reduced prices, usually through community health centers or through university counseling centers where clinicians are being trained.
0: And I want to go back to your theme of connection, you know, we're talking about sharing your feelings with close and trusted family members. Again, trusted family members or friends is essential. And it's likely they're not experiencing your same level of grief, if at all, you know, they, they might not have any hand in that. But maybe they've been through something similar, or they're just like one tear removed from what you went through, right? So the process of communication and talking about your emotions helps everyone build a better support system while mourning. And I preach this ad nauseum all the time when I'm talking to first responders who have been in, in these events that, you know, sometimes because they're under investigation, they literally can't talk about what happened. Yeah but you don't want to go home and traumatize your family. So we always talk about the importance of, it's not talking about the ins and outs of what happened. It's how you feel and how you feel about it. Of course, you're going to go to these most trusted sources, one, because you're going to be a little bit more vulnerable, but it's okay to talk about that stuff. And you're not talking about the investigative pieces of these events that you're not allowed to talk to anyone else about, nor are you then putting these horrific images in someone else's mind, but you're still using your social support system. Because I also don't want you to cut off people out of your life when this really big thing happened, because you're just trying to protect them from it. So so there is a way to navigate that no matter who we're talking about that's experienced the trauma. And I think a lot of people do think about those around them. They don't want to negatively start traumatizing folks with their stuff and be a burden. But these are the moments that you do have to reach out and use your social support systems. If you find that talking about your trauma is too difficult, I can't emphasize this enough, how powerful, again, going back to writing is, write a letter. So one, write your feelings down, but also if you have lost a loved one and that's what this is about, write a letter to that person. I'm sure Scott, you do this all the time in grief work is suggesting that when they take those moments to sit and process and spend that time with that loved one, This is a perfect way to do it, is just writing a letter. It's one of the most basic and most powerful interventions in therapy and self-help and we usually advocate to use the letter to tell them about your feelings, your feelings of anger, sadness, loneliness, remorse, maybe regret all of these things that, especially if a loved one or a family friend is murdered, talk about the perpetrators involved, you know, every little aspect, it's just coming out on paper and then you can decide what you do with that. But keeping a journal to process your emotions when they become overwhelming, again, is a very powerful tool with, like you said, the research to back it up.
1: In addition to this, things that are not sort of directly therapy involved would include integrating more hobbies into your life that can relieve tension. The go-tos that everybody knows are exercise, artwork, yoga, outdoor activities, you know, whatever floats your boat. Everybody should have a hobby, regardless if you've been traumatized or not. You should have something that gives you respite from your work life and allows you to both be stimulated and turn your brain off at the same time. I mean, hobbies are wonderful. And then really important, and this is what I wanted to end with on these interventions is just try for a while to keep it simple. That's really hard. That's really hard for anybody that is their identity is really wrapped up in being a fixer. You know, if, if you're a hard charger, a fixer, a go, go, go lifestyle, this is going to be really the time to simplify your life. You got to reduce normal everyday stressors by taking time off work. What a concept actually taking time off work. Yeah. I know people that have survived terrible, terrible events here in LA and then been at work the next day. And I've like, go home. You need to get the hell out of here. This well, it's is ridiculous. a distractor.
0: It's scary to keep it simple sometimes. I know,
1: but the work is there. The work has to be done. You know, you're, you're not going to be helping any of us in the long run if you don't take care of yourself. That's the way I always look at it. And reducing those stressors by taking off work also extends to school, interpersonal commitments, community commitments, and just focus on the bare essentials. So it sounds like I might be contradicting myself from what I said earlier, because isolation versus connection But I'm not talking about isolating, becoming a hermit in the woods. That's certainly not going to benefit anybody, but taking time to yourself to really consider what are my feelings? Maybe you need to sit down with a feeling wheel and go into that anger and sadness triangle and look at all the different words that describe that can be there. What can be there when you're going through this terrible time?
0: Well, and being around people that you want to be around, not that you have to be around. Oh my gosh. You know, surround yourself with. The people are being supportive of you, not the people you have to like put on a fake face for at work.
1: Yeah, I remember when my older brother, Tom, passed away many, many years ago. I had a, a really good friend who I think wanted to be helpful, but he couldn't stop talking about himself. And his Mm. grief, and every time I would gently try and bring it back to, I want it because I did want to share what I was going through. I realized very quickly that he wanted to be a good friend and he really wanted to help, but he wasn't capable of taking in what I was going through because it would hurt too much. So, you know, no judgment. Just like this is now that I understand this is a person that I don't go to for that type of support yeah but also reduce or mindfully manage the use of any recreational substances you got to avoid alcohol and drugs even if it's your your Mm go-to that grief trauma not a good combination with alcohol and drugs you know a little bit You know, measured use of recreational substances can provide release and some healthy disinhibition, but they can also act as a means to increase depressive symptoms. And then they can also impair your ability to emotionally recover in the long term from those events. So please be careful.
0: Yeah, they're just band-aids.
1: There are some really interesting movements and individuals and actions that have emerged from the experience of survivor guilt, one of them being the most famous through a man named Simon Weisenthal. He's not a criminal. Usually we give an idea of criminal acts in in engaging this, but his survivor guilt as a survivor of the Holocaust drove him to be a Nazi hunter for Mm. decades and to inspire people to track down Nazis that had escaped into other countries, other communities, change their backgrounds, change their identities, and they didn't let up. I mean, they, they were still taking people to trial, you know, guards, clerical workers, people that were engaged in the movement. They might be 90 years old, but they're still going oh, to court. Oh, well,
0: yeah. yeah. Wow. What a hero. And a just you can't even put into words how meaningful being that tenacious about that right. meant to so many people. And their families
1: or the memory of them, even if there's nobody left that survives those people, but just the memory that they existed and had value and and something to add to the human mix. And it was taken away from them.
0: Yes. Well, I do want to talk about a hugely inspirational and amazing woman in her story, because I think it harkens back to the Moscow, Idaho story that we started with that is still very much very raw very active, obviously. And this is the story of Kathy Kleiner. She is one of the survivors of Ted Bundy's 1978 attack on the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University. And her sophomore year At college, her parents convinced her to move into the sorority house because it had secure locks. It had a house mother. She would be with a lot of other girls. And she and her roommate, Karen, shared a room on the second floor where they always left their curtains open to let in that gorgeous Florida sunshine. And on January 14th, 1978, Karen and Kathy went to bed around 10.30 p.m. And at about three in the morning, a dark figure entered the room, basically making enough noise, like tripping over stuff in the unfamiliar space that Kathy wakes up and she didn't have her glasses on. So all she could see was really this black mass raise something up over her, and then she felt it. Bundy had hit her multiple times with a log from a wood pile that he had found just outside the house. Until she passed out, her jaw was broken in three places, but she was alive and Bundy only stopped his attacks on both girls because car headlights flooded in the room when another sorority sister arrived home that morning. So Bundy fled. He wasn't caught for nearly another two weeks, but this is how we have come to know. Kathy, but obviously the story is so much more,
1: right? She provided so much information that we wouldn't have had if there hadn't been a survivor. And when emergency services arrived, four women had been beaten to within inches of their lives, and two had died at the hands of Bundy. Their names, Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. Kathy returned to Miami to spend time healing with her family. And we have a quote from Tori Telfer's article in Rolling Stone that I think is really powerful and I want to share with you. Though she was surrounded by family, she was desperate to hear from her Chi Omega sisters, but no one was returning her calls. This was the first taste of the peculiar loneliness Kleiner would feel as a Bundy victim in a world of Bundy news. She had just survived a brush with one of the most dangerous men in the country, and yet in some ways, she's on her own. The TV cameras swarmed around Bundy and the rest of the world was moving on. I haven't been around any of my sorority sisters since the attack, and they're all moving forward, and here I'm stuck in a bubble, she says. Me and Bundy in a bubble. Mm. Damn.
0: Yes. Yes. I know. Damn. I mean, it's yeah. just such a window into her experience. And I think we're all, you know, kind of comparing how this fits in with survivor guilt already.
1: Right. I think things have come a long way since then. I think for one thing, our younger people today are more sophisticated than oh, wow. probably her generation. I mean, I think people would reach out. You know, my experience when my brother passed, his daughter was getting ready to graduate from undergrad and her sorority sisters formed this unbelievable swarm mm. of support for yeah. her, like traveling halfway across the state. Oh wow. And making sure, you know, I I looked around and said, "I gosh, does anybody know where I could get some so-and-so? And And then before I could stop her, somebody had grabbed her keys and she goes, I'm heading to Rite Aid. I'm going to pick that up. You got my text number, whatever else you need. Anybody text me, let me know what you need. So I think that I'm not going to compare my brother's passing of cancer to a brutal, brutal homicide. But I do think that people today are more integrated. Young people, especially in that situation, would reach out. There's also something that's very different today than there was then. Colleges were very hands-off.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And today that would not happen. And I would love to say that it was for purely altruistic reasons, but it's mainly because of liability. You know, uh-huh. universities are going to swarm in, you know, universities that have a police team that have a mental evaluation team. The student services are going to come in. They're going to be making sure that everything is being taken care of. And maybe it the drive for that is not necessarily all altruistic. But hey, you know what, if if benefits come from it, then great. But I want to go back and talk a little bit more about Kathy. She goes on in that article to talk about how other survivors and their families did not discuss what happened publicly. And at the time, the media was really mindful of not hounding her or the others so as to not re-traumatize them. What but a concept. She found,
0: <laughs> I know. So what a concept, wow. right? No, Talk about a different period of time.
1: Well, isn't it interesting how all this stuff is flipped? I mean, yes. we're talking about like just sort of the culture has flipped and not in a particularly good way in, in right. all aspects, right? Because she found it very isolating not to be able to process it. With others who have experienced sure. it, you know, I'm just unfortunately we would do that today, but we would want it to be on Jerry Springer, you know, right. while they're while they're meeting up. Here are the five survivors from all, you know, like, exactly. and we're going to watch them cry in front of you. But it was really important to her to go back to the Kai Omega house, and she did so in 1980, wandering the halls and the rooms for her own closure. I can see how that would be really powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can definitely. See that, yeah. So listen to how Kathy, at least in one instance kind of took control back of her own psychological healing after the attack. Since she was struggling with this fear of men who were strangers, she ended up taking a job as a cashier at a lumberyard where all she did was interact with stranger men. I mean, talk about exposure therapy. She's like, I am going to throw myself into this. (laughs) I I don't know if I could do
1: that. If I was in that position, I think that shows an incredible resiliency already starting to emerge from her. That's really amazing.
0: Well, talk about resiliency because Kathy is a survivor in so many ways. Life has certainly challenged her, but she has met it with incredible resilience. Her father died when she was five. In the sixth grade, she was diagnosed with lupus. She was hospitalized for months and then her family decided to go with an experimental dose of chemo in which in her post chemo treatment, You know, her immune system was so compromised that she had to be homeschooled for all of seventh grade. So that's a lot for a a kiddo to go through. And then after the attacks and after marriage to her college boyfriend, she takes a job as a bank teller and is robbed at gunpoint.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And she, she took the afternoon off, but she went back to work. The next day, she did indeed testify at Bundy's trial, and every single question she answered, she did it looking straight at him. And, you know, her her injuries she was left with, she's had to have numerous surgeries, realigning her jaw and accounting for TMJ that has resulted, but also she is a breast cancer survivor as well and i wow. got to meet and spend some time chatting with kathy at the savannah crime expo last year she was just there to help out it's not like she was speaking or walking around telling people who she was the sweetest woman with just this like joy and fire behind her eyes and the best smile she's just a complete sweetheart and what what from what i've researched about her and listening to her interviews you know she's not upset or mad at this whole true crime genre thing. She finds it really interesting too. She reads on the topics. She attends these events. She's kind of in the mix of it when she wants to be. And seems to really connect herself with good people trying to do good work in the true crime space and kind of moving it forward. So she's a remarkable individual. Definitely go listen to her interview on Dialogue podcast from February of 2021. You'll just get a wonderful idea of who Kathy Kleiner is. Kind of connecting these two cases in my mind. I hope somehow the universe brings Kathy and DM from the Idaho events together one day. You know, there's nothing like going through a trauma and talking to someone who's been there as close as you have and even though nothing is going to be absolutely the same or similar or even your the way that you feel afterwards, there's just such power in that and I think she could be such a great support to this young lady.
1: Thank you for giving that example and I'm so sorry I was not able to be in Savannah to meet her, but that's wonderful and it's a, a great note. A great example to wrap this part of it up with, with somebody that found resiliency, found healing, and has gone on to find purpose and joy in her life so that she's not at the effect of being fully, constantly ongoing, identified with this one horrific incident yeah. in her life. Absolutely. So that's that's a really great example. You know, as we like to do, we like to give, you know, different examples of how this can exist in entertainment yeah. and you threw out a great (laughs) one. I love this example in some iterations of the Superman comic. Superman is the sole survivor of the planet Krypton and consequently in a lot of the storylines, he does suffer from immense survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because for anyone who is at all familiar with comic books. There have been very many iterations, very many timelines. There's a multiverse. So there's all sorts of Superman stuff going on. But if we go back to the origins of Superman and how he came about as a character. So it was created in 1933 by Jerry Siegel. And Joe Schuster, Jerry Siegel was the writer, Joe Schuster is the artist. And, you know, like if we look at their last names, and I'm not saying, I mean, there's been a lot written on this. Superman and many other of our original comic book heroes were written and developed by Jewish men at a time in American society, where Jews were treated very badly. And I unfortunately hate to say it, that here we are almost 100 years later, and that shit is still going on, where yep. Jews are being maligned with conspiracy theories and, and absolute bullshit. It's just so angering. But this was, I think, an effort by these authors to push back against the cultural and religious oppression that has been extant in the Jewish experience, the Jewish identity for for thousands of years. And in fact, it's very interesting that Superman became a character that was involved in World War II. Mm-hmm. So the comics that were being generated were of him fighting the aggressors in that movement. And he became like a, a an icon, and still is an icon today for many young people. As far as someone who is just a good guy, a, yeah. a, he's the Uber Mint. She's like the best of the good guys, right? Yes, yeah, survivor guilt in Superman has been explored many times, but generally it always develops into there's another survivor, or there's another planet, mm-hmm. or there's a shard of Krypton that saved these people and these people are floating <laughs> around in space. And But yeah, that's something um, you think about Princess Leia. Princess Leia had the same experience in the first Star Wars movie.
0: Yes, when well, they blew the first up Alderaan.
1: Storm, yes, when Alderaan explodes.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, I, that's so interesting. You know, I think it, it comes full circle to a lot of what we've talked about today and what how the writers decided to have Superman take his power back right and in, in the most heroic way possible. <laughs>
1: well by being someone who was superpowered literally the most powerful being on the planet and yet use it for good. Right. And to still have a moral compass and an ethical compass and, you know, a North Star to all of those qualities.
0: Right. So it's, you
1: know, it's it's the best that can come out of survivor guilt. I think that's a good example.
0: Yes. There is a documentary that CNM Films did. It's called Soul Survivor, and it features stories of four different stories of soul survivors of plane crashes. And I mean, like full on planes crashing into the ocean. You know, there's one story with a woman who was four years old at the time that she survived a 1987 plane crash that killed all other 156 people on the flight. And, you know, there, again, like hearkening back to the Las Vegas shooting episode, she stays connected to this day with the firefighter that found her. He attended her wedding, you know, just some really, really remarkable stories, but also how, what an isolating, lonely experience it is to be the only person that survived this so definitely worth the watch as well but if you guys out there can think of movies that depict survivor guilt really well we have great people that send us all the time like i'm like how did i not think of that film Duh. but this is great again i don't know how we keep coming up with topics but here we are five years in <laughs> well
1: and, and we've got a great set of patreon members that constantly give us new ideas which Absolutely. is wonderful yeah Absolutely. we're lucky in that way we're so lucky
0: But yeah, closing the books on another one. So just some closing housekeeping. We're going to talk about two live events coming up that you have the opportunity to attend. And the first is Parapod Festival, which is April 1st in Valencia, California. We will be doing a panel with Bryce and Tammy from Hollyweird Paranormal on the crimes and hauntings of the Barclay Hotel. If you're somebody that came to our downtown LA walking tour, then you remember we definitely stopped by the Barclay Hotel. And Chris told us, all about it. You can go to parapodfestival.com for tickets. We don't have a discount code for you, but you can get an early bird rate right now on their website.
1: Then we also have another wonderful big event coming up crime con uk that will be june 9th and 10th in london we are excited and honored to be presenting on the main stage our presentation which will be adapted for this conference is entitled case studies in loneliness rage and risk discerning threat in the age of the incel it is something that who knew we would be the go-to people for commentary on incels but that has become the, our presentation over the last couple of years we constantly keep it updated with the most recent research so if there's any way for you to meet us there we would love it it's crimecon.co.uk for tickets and use confidential for 10% off i do think that they're going to have a virtual presence if anyone is interested in that please check out the website
0: yes but we would love to see you over there and share a pint with you
1: absolutely <laughs> i can't a pint wait. and some crisps
0: yes please <laughs> All right, Dr. Scott, I think that'll do it for us today. So we'll see everyone next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye, guys. Bye, folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The L.A. Not-So-Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at L.A. Not-So-Podcast, on Twitter at L.A. Not-So-Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
1: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
0: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on L.A. Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.